Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Dr. Larry Pilevsky, who has been a leader in the, I guess the mainstream media would call it the anti-vax movement, but we call it the pro-choice movement. And certainly uh, like myself, he's received many criticisms and been, because he was in this way before COVID and we'll, we'll get his specific history, but it, I think it was last century that you got into this, like I did, you know, before the 20th century. It seems like ages ago. It's almost a quarter century now. But anyway, we're going to talk about, obviously, vaccines. And uh, more importantly, since Dr. Pileski is, is a pediatrician, the impact that the mainstream narrative is having on our children's educational system and really highlighting the absolute crucial, vital importance of getting your kids out of public education system because it's just a propaganda brainwashing system that's going to clearly lead to nothing nothing good for, for your children. <clears throat> Excuse me, with all that preface, thank you and welcome for joining us. Uh, it's great to be here, Joe. It's been, uh, it's been a while and uh, I look forward to our conversation. Yeah, you've been a real leader in in this in this area and done a lot of education. So why don't you? You're a pediatrician practicing out in New York, and you still have a practice. That's right. You're still that's correct. Patients. Okay, so why don't you walk us through your journey and epiphanies and waking you up to the realities of what vaccines are, and they're really not what they're purported to be. And because we all wake up at different times and. It seems many of the leaders in the current uh, anti-COVID movement, anti-COVID-19 jab movement, more specifically, really were unaware of this for the longest time. Uh, and, they, and many of them got the jab themselves before they woke up and understood the, the, the problems with it. But it's, this, it's, obviously, the COVID jab is the worst in, in history, but all of them are fundamentally flawed. So why don't you tell us what woke you up? Well, I, I graduated NYU School of Medicine in 1987. All I got was, these are the shots we give. Mm -hmm. And then three years of pediatric residency at Mount Sinai in New York was, this is the schedule, follow it. Because so this is what we did when we did clinic. And then a year of fellowship in pediatrics at Bellevue from 1990 to 1991, yes. uh, the same. That's a, public, that's a public health hospital, for those who don't know. And, and you, the pathology you see in those types of scenarios are just unbelievable. It's like practicing many lifetimes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a great education in an inner city hospital in New York, but it was in 1991 when the New York State Department of Health started to mandate the hepatitis B vaccine for all infants. Mm -hmm. And I had no comments about vaccines per se at that time, but it just raised a red flag to me. Why are we giving a vaccine to a population that has never suffered from hepatitis B infections and where we can actually give the mother the hepatitis B vaccine if she, we can give the kid a hepatitis B vaccine if the mother were surface antigen positive. And so this raised an alarm for me and none of my colleagues around me were as alarmed as I was. We had never had a vaccine 
that was for uh, an illness that didn't affect the population we were injecting. And so I went along as an ER physician in the Bronx, New York, which was more inner city hospitals. And by 1995, I was running a pediatric ICU. And all of a sudden in 1998, uh, in the clinic, in, in the outpatient department of the hospital where I was working, a mother came up to me and said, Larry, Dr. Larry, did you know that there's mercury in vaccines? And that turned it. Because now, I didn't just quiet prior to then, were you opposed them or just philosophically curious in 1991? What was that period between 91 and My My curiosity in 91 had nothing to do with vaccines per se. It just had to do with the idea that we should give mm-hmm. a B vaccine to a population that didn't suffer from the disease. That made no sense medically, but it had nothing to do with the vaccine subject in total. Okay. okay. So then in 1998, I, I heard that information and I said, all right, uh, what else? And the what else created the last 25 years of finding information that I could never have been taught in medical school or residency and would never be taught in medical school or residency. And that directly opposed the narrative. It didn't oppose the science. It just opposed the narrative. And what I realized was I was finding science while I was being opposed by consensus. Mm -hmm. And consensus was not science. And so I found that by, you know, the year 1998 to 2000, that the risks far outweighed the benefits. And by 2002, I decided that I would never offer vaccines again in my practice for patients. That didn't mean that they couldn't go somewhere else, but for my practice, for my precautionary principle, for my first do no harm, Hippocratic Oath, I could not in good conscience offer them something that I had no knowledge about scientifically and a lot of concern about scientifically because there was no safety about it. There were no real studies done. The ingredients were uh, unknown and filthy at best, and there were no good studies to demonstrate its safety or effectiveness. And I couldn't, with good conscience, offer that. Again, people could get it, but I couldn't offer it. Yeah, so thanks for sharing that. And uh, can you, does your memory good enough to recall what the social context was with respect to your peers? I mean, because I actually turned around a bit a few years before that. And but 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 you know I, I was less engaged in patient care, and I was in the because I had started the website and stuff in the late eight, the late nineties. Uh, so my memory is somewhat clouded as to exactly the context. But were were you getting a lot of pushback from fellow pediatricians? And I'm not a pediatrician; I was a family physician, so it's a little bit different. Were your fellow pediatricians ostracizing you or uh, giving you? Uh, challenges? Well, in 1998, when I first heard this information, uh, and I saw a patient in the clinic where I was working who had a significant vaccine reaction with swollen lymph nodes and fevers, I said to the nurse that I was going to delay certain kids' vaccines. I was going to not give them at certain visits. Word got out in New York City that there was this pediatrician at a clinic in a hospital who was willing to accept patients with a delayed schedule or no schedule at all. And my peers were like, 
because the nurse spoke, you know, mm-hmm. they were keeping track, you know, Dr. Larry's not giving these shots to his clinic patients. Why not? Numbers were going down and uh, my colleagues just couldn't understand what I was doing. But Joe, they would not care whether I had information that would give them pause for for what they were doing and actually open their eyes to what I was discovering. They did not care. And then 2000, when I went into private practice at a, an integrative health center affiliated with Beth Israel, uh, we accepted patients who didn't vaccinate, but there was a hum in the city because you know I was now open for business for patients who didn't want to give shots. And uh, it was definitely, uh, what is he doing there? And for the last 23 years, there's still been this hum, but no one has had the, the nerve. I was going to say the balls, so I'll say it. No one had the balls to actually come to me personally or publicly and say, can we have a discussion about what you're doing and why you're doing it? No one was interested. Well, that's not surprising, but I was more interested in understanding if there's any medical boards that started oh. interfering with you because that's an, an action against your license. I mean, because so many physicians with the COVID pandemic, they, they lost their licenses. They lost their board certifications. They lost their ability to practice, essentially. They took away every other credential, but their license. Right. Uh, and actually, in some cases, their license was taken away. Uh, a number of cases, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, Dr. Merrill Nass, and others, many others, but those are the two that come to mind. Right. So was that ever an issue for you? No. How did you think you escaped? That doesn't make sense. Uh, it makes sense to me because I'm living it, but I understand yeah. where you're coming from. <laughs> um, here's here. I mean, I can make, I can come up with some reasons. Number one, um, I don't have hospital privileges and I haven't had hospital privileges uh, for 20 years. Okay. I don't take insurance. I don't use electronic medical records. I don't sell vaccines and I rarely write prescriptions. So there's very little track record of what I'm doing clinically other than what patients are experiencing. And I'm not monetizing my existence. So those are, to me, are- you expand on that last statement? Well, I'm, I'm not creating a big, uh, uh, I'm not creating a big fund. I'm not earning tons and tons of money on that concept of okay so you're not selling an alternative right uh, uh, and 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 for those who don't know there's a lot of specialties in medicine the lowest paid specialty from my understanding is pediatricians and they have one of the hardest jobs i think uh, it's pediatrics and psychiatry but yes psychiatry okay i think it is you're right yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, there was no track record of me anywhere in the system other than my interviews or um, things that I did in documentaries or lectures. So I think, you know, I mean, there was one time in uh, 2019, I believe it was, when I spoke in front of a group of uh, Orthodox Jews in Muncie, New York, and uh, there was an article that came out saying New York City pediatrician tells parents not to give their kids the MMR, which was slander because I never did that. And Mm -hmm. I actually have the tape of the lecture and Mm -hmm. I never told parents not to take the shot. Mm -hmm. I think that's the most that I can remember. Arthur Kaplan, who's a Mm so-called ethicist at NYU, said that I shouldn't have my license 
but nothing else happened. I thought he was in Minnesota. I think he's in NYU. Okay, you're probably right. I yeah, just don't remember him from Minnesota. Um, wow, so that that's impressive. Impressive indeed. All right, so thank you for that backstory and you know, give us a frame of what your position has been. Did you did you notice any changes or differences when COVID hit, uh, or because of the factors that you just mentioned, you were somewhat uh, uh, immune to any uh, uh, interference from the medical boards? Right. Uh, I still I, nothing changed. I mean, wow. there were. There were pediatricians around the country who called me out, um, who are now probably eating crow because um, the evidence back then when they called me out was obvious. And the evidence now is even more obvious that this is uh, a bioweapon and a murder weapon and not a shot that's meant for health. Yeah, well, let's take a tangent here because I think it's an important point. And you, you've really obviously studied this and you're still in practice. So you really have a good understanding of the realities of what's happened. So this, I, I couldn't agree with you more. This is a bioweapon, but it seems to be particularly pernicious to the young who have essentially zero, zero need for this. The only thing that they can get from this is harm. That's their best, their best, get, no, their best outcome of a, of a COVID-19 jab is nothing. That's the best they could hope for because there's no protection. But why don't you discuss the incidents and the prevalence of the complications like the myocarditis, the, the deaths that are happening, and what and a summary of what probably is the most egregious violation in pediatrics, the history of pediatrics in the entire world. I mean, to, to get away with this is just, it's just shocking. And, and in, in the future, this is going to be viewed I can just see the documentaries now, what they're right. going to expose. But but right now we're still in the middle of the mainstream narrative, so it's not coming out. So why don't yeah. you give us your summary? I, I think the I think the most heinous thing is that what I'm about to say, I will be gaslighted for it because the whole system has been gaslighting the obvious observations and experiences of most of the physicians and parents in the world who have woken up. So the first things that we started to see were menstrual cycle changes in girls, in women, especially in women who stopped mm -hmm. menstruating. The, the most horrible thing we started to see were, um, in, was infertility, stillbirths, miscarriages. And um, then we started to see babies born with uh, birth defects, Babies born with strokes, with blood clots, uh, with developmental delays. Uh, we saw uh, young kids with myocarditis, which is an inflammation of the heart, pericarditis, an inflammation around the heart. You saw kids who were dropping dead. You saw kids who were having neurological problems in addition to stroke. Uh, you saw seizures. Uh, you're seeing uh, even Parkinsonian type symptoms in uh, young adults. And again, the sudden death was amazing and heart attacks. And what, what's most amazing is that is that the medical profession in advance started to prepare the public for heart attacks in kids or strokes in kids. And so they started to approve medications ahead of time so that people were prepared to know that pharmaceutical medicine was available 
should your child have a heart attack? So these things were normalized into the pediatric population and pediatricians were just accepting. Yeah, uh, neonatal uh, ICUs could could definitely have stroke victims all the time. That's, yeah. that's what, that's that's what normal. happened. That's normal. That's normal. And then the other interesting thing was that in uh, uh, OB, OB suites, we're starting to see fewer and fewer kids being born. So you started to see the number of babies born go down, which was another sign of the infertility. Um, and, and these were, these continue to be drastic changes in the pediatric population. And uh, nonetheless, uh, all of it is being accepted as normal. Yeah, along those lines, another thing they did was the, in the adult population, and you can expand on this, but my understanding, SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, is primarily now, and those who have studied this, related to vaccine immunizations. Uh, now they created this new term, this new sin syndrome that never previously existed prior to COVID, which was SADS, Sudden right. Adult Death Syndrome. And that it was normal for adults to suddenly drop dead for no apparent reason, other than, of course, having the jab. Right. But they never linked that as causal or correlated that. Sure. Well, but one, one of the interesting. Come on that, because it seems like there, there's, there's there are different versions of the same issue, the reaction to the, to the vaccine. Right. Well, one of the interesting correlates to that is that over the 2020 to 2023 time period, we saw drops in the incidence rates of sudden infant death syndrome. Interesting. I did not know that. And that's primarily because uh, fewer patients were going for primary care visits to their pediatrician. And got, and got the, the, not just not, well, the jabs weren't available until late 2022. Well, I'm just talking about the regular pediatrician. Oh, I know, I know. But as a result of that, because of somewhat of a challenge in getting routine medical care they, the, 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 and the concern that a lot of parents had about the immunizations in general. Has that fear, not fear, concern, justifiable concern extended to the current time? Are, are immunizations down, normal childhood immunizations? Well, yeah, the American Academy of Pediatrics has put out position papers to its members to try to find ways to encourage parents to come back into the office to get their childhood shots. What, what, what the public is now aware of is once people who were never concerned about mm -hmm. childhood immunizations started to realize that there was a concern about the COVID jab, it opened up a Pandora's box for them. So they not only started questioning the COVID jab, they started questioning all jabs. And so this COVID scenario has actually backfired for the pediatric uh, population, for the American Academy of Pediatrics and standard Western medical care, because parents are, are really more concerned than ever. And I have seen an uptick in the number of patients who were never questioning vaccines coming into my office because the COVID jab became a concern to them. Do you have any idea where the numbers are, though? Parents who who are not immunizing their children now because of this? No, uh, I mean, the percentage is obviously not specific quantities, but you know, is it like know, in different in different states? There's there used to be a religious exemption in 48 okay. states. Now it's in like 46, I think. 
uh, 45. And the the religious exemption rates were maybe anywhere between, you know, a half percent to three percent. And then there were the small percentages of medical exemptions. I don't know if the numbers have gone up. I mean, if if my practice is any indication, I would say that the numbers have gone up because I'm seeing people who never would have come into my office previously because they were doing the routine shots. Yeah, I would love to use your your office as an example, but I think you're not really a good good sample of the different populations out there because you're you've been out there for so long warning people about this and you you attracted a, a certain type of individual yeah. who you know because clearly a number of people woke up during this as you alluded to sure. uh but i don't, i'm just curious as to the percentage and, and i don't think anyone knows because that would require an objective truthful investigation and that just is impossible nowadays sure. so all right. Well, well, thanks for that backstory and history and your perspective on this. I think it would be good. One of the reasons I reached out to you initially was to address another atrocity, which is not, I mean, the, the jabs are killing people. There's no question contributing to massive disability. But they're, they're, the other angle is the whole mainstream narrative from public health authorities and mainstream media and academic institutions is to support this whole, I guess the trans agenda would be one form of, one part of it. It's probably, it's a big part. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, and we've, we've had other people on that have written books on this and they really don't want to go deep into it, but just from, a, from your perspective, it, the, I'd like to discuss because the impact that the educational system has on it, because the people I've interviewed in the past believe that's a massive component. And sure. you know, the conclusion that it seems to be obvious if you investigate this is that you simply cannot put your kids in the conventional schooling system sure. because it's just an absolute prescription for disaster. They're going to get, it's, it's just like, okay, take my child, brainwash him, indoctrinate him, teach him every bad thing that they shouldn't know. And, you know, it's just being an irresponsible, it's irresponsible as a parent. So why don't you give us your perspective on what they're doing in the educational system? So um, I'll start out with a, a, a big statement. The, the current educational system completely ignores everything we know about child development and brain development. <laughs> big surprise. <laughs> completely ignores it. Um, if you look at child development, if you look at human development, we know that the, the most distinguishing thing about humans compared to other mammals is the function of our frontal brain, our frontal cortex and prefrontal cortex, which allows us to think and reason, analyze, understand, focus, pay attention, be aware, have consciousness. This is the biggest part of the brain uh, that distinguishes us from other mammals. Now, when babies are born, that part of the brain is not developed. In fact, it's dormant. Now, the, the question then becomes, how does that front of the brain develop? Now, if you look at true child development, true brain development, you would see that brain development of the forebrain develops from the back of the brain forward. So you initiate a voluntary movement, you have an experience, you do it over and over and over again. Through those experiences, you come to an understanding. 
you come to reason, you come to think, and then you have ownership of your knowledge. So it's a hindbrain does an action. The midbrain has an experience over and over and over again. The forebrain comes to what I call a forebrain conclusion, mm -hmm. and you have knowledge. The entire educational system, the media, medical school, residency, everything that we see in today's world that delivers information says, no, the brain develops from the outside in. We're going to teach you. We're going to tell you. We're going to give to you. And you're going to now know. And unfortunately, that has become the norm. And so what you see is all these self-appointed experts who have all of this great knowledge, but have no ownership of it because it's not theirs. They never researched it. They never studied it. They never experienced it. They never thought it through. They never critically evaluated it. They never did trial and error. They just said, if you said it, I believe it, therefore it's true. And so what we're turning out in our schools, and that includes law schools and medical schools and graduate schools, social work school, psychology school, is we are going to tell you all you need to know. You don't have to think. We're just going to download it into your forebrain, and we're going to cut off the rest of your brain's function. We're not going to give you the opportunity to question, because as you know, we are being told not to question anymore, which is why we're getting in trouble, because we're questioning. You're going to get in trouble if you try to think differently than what you're being told. And we're going to take away brain development so that you are now a robot. You are now an automaton. You are now a, 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 a protocol-driven, algorithm-driven being who will have the ability to just follow everything we tell you. So if we've lost diversity, we've lost critical thinking, we've actually watched the front brain deteriorate in function. And that's partly due to creating fear, which cuts off the blood flow to the front brain. Addiction cuts off the blood flow to the front brain. Video games, addiction cuts off blood flow to the front of the brain. Devices, all these apps, all this social media, which cuts off blood flow to the front of the brain and creates ongoing primitive brain function. So we have designed a society that doesn't allow for education. It allows for uh, downloading. It allows for regurgitating. It allows for mass speak. But people know because they've been told. They no longer know because it's theirs and their life experience. And this, I, I fear for, not fear as in, oh my mm -hmm. God, I'm panicked, but I'm afraid for the next generation and the next generation after that because they have no skills anymore to really work through a problem, to figure it out because they've been kept from having those life experiences. Yeah.
<laughs> there's a, appears to be a, a aggressive effort to squash any critical thinking skills. And I suspect if there was a pharmacological agent that facilitated that, they would be pushing it to put it in the water supply. For Drugs sure. called Ritalin and Adderall. And well, but the, the, those definitely have their pathologies, but I'm not sure that they by themselves would diminish your critical thinking skills. I think it's it's more the, the, the narrative and the propaganda, the, right. the repetition of lies. You hear a lie so many times by so many different sources, you begin to believe it. Right. And that's what's happening. You know, all these trusted authorities, the media, well, maybe not so much. A lot of people <laughs> figured out the media, but traditionally trusted authorities, the, the media, the public health authorities, the physicians, you know, the medical journals, they're all in harmony and sync telling these lies right. and, and squashing the critical thinking skills. I mean, I mean, think about it. If someone were to come up to me and say, Dr. Larry, you know, vaccines are safe. The common back and forth is, no, they're not. You don't know anything. But I do it differently. If someone were to come up to me and say, Dr. Larry, you know, vaccines are safe. My first response to that person would be, really? Tell me more. Yeah, Tell yeah. You know that. And, and what I would find is a regurgitation mm -hmm. of material that the person didn't research, but just was told. Or fed. They were fed. Right. And, and so that's the, the problem. That's so, and, and, and it it, their strategy works. Yeah, it does. <laughs> but but the, the, the other challenge that I don't think the American public is aware of is if we go back into the history of public education, we will see that the purpose of public education at its darkest roots is to make people sheep, to keep them from critical thinking, to keep them uh, mass thinking, and to uh, control the population. And that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, but all you have to do is go into the research of public education, and you'll see that that was always the design. Yeah, so it's really quite easy to construct a future scenario that's beyond gr grim and dismal <laughs> and potentially existential. So do you believe at this point there's some effective strategies that people can implement to give them some hope to, to perhaps create a remnant that can survive this pervasive uh, indoctrination that's going on? Sure. Um, number one, turn off your TV. That would be a great number one step. Stop reading the mainstream news media uh, and turn off your TV. And but, but we got to know what's going on. We got to listen to find out with the New York Times. It is it is entertaining if you understand the truth. I think it's safe to look at it because you just want to know what they're up to. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I agree. But but again, but, uh, but, but relying on them as being truthful is is a prescription for disaster. Yeah. Well, I mean, whenever I hear a, a, a parent in my office say, well, they say, I stop them. And I go, number one, who's they? Yeah. And number two, if you're quoting they say, I'm, I'm not so sure you're doing your own research and critical thinking. But, but for parents, number one, if you do keep your kids in the public or private school education system, 
uh, I advise you to have conversations with your children at home to probe them and ask them, you know, what'd you learn today? And what'd you think about what you learned today? How did it make you feel? Did you have an opposing view? Were you able to express an opposing view? What happened if you did? Uh, did the teacher allow it or did the teacher not allow it? And uh, cultivate an opportunity at home for your child to go through a process of critical thinking. Uh, and if you are really disgusted with the uh, public school or private school education, then uh, I, I will tell you that uh, you are in good hands because the number of parents who are homeschooling their children in this country has exponentially uh, uh, gone up. And, you know, I know that there's all of these. Yeah, but what about socialization? Believe me, there's plenty of evidence that mm. not only. Not only do kids do better when they're homeschooled, but their attention spans are quicker. They have they they can retain 20 minutes on an hour, whereas I think children who are in public school retain uh, they have to go 45 minutes on an hour. Uh, socialization happens. It also frees the child up to be creative, to have imagination, to learn through doing, to learn through life experience, to learn how to do things that the schools are not teaching you anymore. Uh, schools don't give you life skills and what you can do when you have homeschooling or Joe, even unschooling. These kids do function better and they do have better grades and they do have good social skills. Uh, it's just, they're just not being bombarded with a propaganda machine. Okay, so it would seem just that a statement of avoiding all public school education would be close to accurate. I'm sure there's some exceptions, but it's probably universal. I don't think the same can be said of private schools, mm -hmm. but clearly many are as bad, if not worse than public schools. So are there any criteria that you've uh, developed over the years to identify an acceptable private school or is there, or is it an extension of the dialogue you suggested having with your children? And yeah. It's not only an extension of the dialogue, but, you know, you want to know what the curriculums are of your school. Mm -hmm. uh, are, you know, are you being pigeonholed into these state sanctioned propaganda machines or are the teachers actually teaching the correct American history, the correct literature? Right. Uh, are, are you in a school where the books are being banned because the agenda, it doesn't meet with the agenda? I mean, these are things that you want to know, uh, you know, is your child going to be persecuted for raising a different opinion? And I, I think that's the I think that's the biggest problem in our culture today is you're not allowed to raise a difference of opinion. And uh, I would certainly hope that a good education, a good private school would allow for that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. And. Uh few other characteristics of an unacceptable private school would be if they if they have uh, mask mandates oh, sure. and required COVID jabs to get into the school. That's, that definitely is a no-go for sure. Yeah. So, but are, are there any words of wisdom you can have in parents who come to the conclusion that they really have no viable option other than to remove their kids from the schooling system and go to the whole schooling route? Uh, you know, suggestions on materials, how to find them, how to look at 
other parents that are doing this in the form of social network? And I mean, what's what's the strategy? What what are the steps they take to do that? Just so you know that there there are a number of parents in your areas uh, who are homeschooling. There are lots of co-op classes. There are online classes. There are online curriculums. Depending on how uh, old your child is, uh, there are nature schools. There are forest schools. There are are um, there's always there are uh, legal uh, structures for homeschooling that that can be available for for parents. Uh, some of them are religious. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are non-religious. Um, but but once you start opening the door to your community and asking around even doing a, a search, you'll find that there are so many parents who are taking their kids out of school in your neighborhood, uh, who creating co-ops, who are creating uh, online opportunities together, who are creating small pods in, in uh, and there are teachers who are leaving public and private education who are also available. Um, and. But how do you how do you find these resources? My guess is that oh. the the evil giant Google has probably, if not already, they will in the near future just remove this stuff from the search engines. You're not going to be able to find it on that. And Facebook's probably doing likewise to removing these groups. So how how do you I, I mean how do you search? How do you find? I mean who do you ask? What what is there's I mean, got to be some central sites that that coordinate well, this. Again, I don't I don't know of any central sites. I know that you know being in New York I'm I'm just local to what's going yeah, on. Well, that's here. A, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you no know, parents are finding each other all the time. But is other there, there types of uh businesses that they the, that homeschooling parents would go to where you can connect with them. Uh or are there other businesses that sell materials for homeschooling that have a list of other people in the area that they can yeah. connect with. I haven't I haven't delved that far into it. I'm sure okay. there's other people who would have answers to that uh right off the bat. Okay. But it's it's worth exploring because I I couldn't agree more. I think you know if I had children, if school school aged children, um I, I don't think there's other any other rational choice if if and the, the responsible parent would needs to choose is to to educate them yourselves and right. really insulate them from the, and the deadly of, indoctrination that's going on. I think one of the fallacies about homeschooling is that the parent has to do all of the homeschooling, and mm -hmm. that's not true. Uh, there are other parents who chip in. There are uh, communities of, of small groups of children where the parents hire a teacher uh, or several teachers who actually keep the kids in a small group and do the homeschooling themselves. So the parent doesn't have to do all of it all the time. Okay. So that's, that's reassuring for sure. Mm -hmm. So uh, hopefully, uh, you know, just doing a little digging and however that's done, you'll identify it. But my guess is once you find, a, all you need to do is find one who's who's been doing this in your area, and they'll be plugged into the network. It's a network of individuals, and they, sure. most of them know each other, and just got to find that local network. Right. Yeah. So it's definitely worth the effort and if you're exploring this as an option. So um, as we're recording this, 
it's the fall of 2023. Flu season is around the corner if it's not here already. Um, so I was actually in New York two weeks ago for the flash flood. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's the first time I was in New York for a few years. But uh, and I love the timing for it. But anyway, so what are you seeing for um, the pushing of the flu jab? And I think it's the triple. What is it called? The triple jab now? It's the, yeah. the COVID, the flu and RSV. Uh, RSV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, that that immunization is available now that it's out there and being administered. Uh, if it is, I, I haven't seen it. Um, okay. I just, I just know that that the COVID shot, the RSV, and the flu are being pushed. The flu, the RSV is being pushed for pregnant women, and certainly there's a, a monoclonal antibody shot for young kids. Um, but I think, I think you know, if I could lead the conversation a little left turn, sure. Uh, most people are not aware that the flu is not caused by a viral illness. Mm -hmm. um, the reason you get sick in the fall, winter, and early spring is because, number one, we live out of season. We live out of schedule of the season. We eat improperly out of season. We don't sleep enough. We don't rest enough. We don't eat the warm foods when when instead we're eating colds and summer foods we don't take our vitamin dk we don't take our our soups and our broths we don't slow down and so anytime we live out of sync of nature we are causing stress to our body and so we know farmers used to go to bed at the sunset and wake up at the sunrise but when the day gets darker earlier and we're up six, eight hours past when the sun goes down, that's stress. Mm. Because our body's reserves are down here and our utilization of energy is up here. All that distance is stress. And one thing that the body has to do, because it can't keep stress, it has to get rid of it. And if you accumulate enough of it, you're going to have to get sick. And so we think that the reason we get sick is because there's some magical virus going around. Well, that's not true. The reason you get sick is because we're stressed, we're living out of nature, we're not eating right, we're not sleeping right, we're not resting right, we're not dressing right, we're overdoing it when our bodies should be quieter, and we're creating too much stress. We're eating lots of sugar, holiday season, you know, sugar, 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 sugar and uh, refined sugar, I should say. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've talked about this endlessly, the fried oils, the seed oils, you know, the hydrogenated oils, you know, these are toxins and the overeating, these are all stressors. And yeah. so an illness isn't necessarily because some magic virus just happens to find its way into your community at a time of year when it wasn't in the community at any other time of year. It's because we're eating wrong, we're living wrong, we're sleeping wrong in relationship to nature. And so we have to get sick because the body is made to heal. Too much stress, it's got to come out. And that's what an illness is. So you had mentioned the hydrogenated oils, but uh, usually those are 
PUFAs that are hydrogenated because they've got right. the double bonds to do it. So, right. Right. but you know, they're, they're certainly dangerous because every time you hydrogenate those, you can get a trans fat and trans fats clearly are not good. But even if you had the healthiest pristine PUFA oils, and you take them in excess, your body can essentially fry them itself. Because at 98.6, that's enough of a heat stress to convert them into these oxidative metabolites. So they're right. very dangerous to, to, to uh, your body and tissues and creates lo loads of free radicals. But the other thing too, you know, is that most people, especially those people living in New York, it's too damn far north to live. <laughs> so, so, you know, come, come around October, September, October, there's not enough sunshine there to generate vitamin D, which is a powerful influence. And yes, you can swallow it, but there's so many other benefits to go with sun exposure independent of vitamin D that uh, support your immune response. So, you know, ideally you would get outside, but even, you know, for, even in the middle of the summer, though, there's a lot of people in New York who never get outside. Yeah. Maybe or if they do get outside, they wear long shirts and long pants and, you know, the amount of sun's touching their skin is, is minimal. So I, I agree, these, these variables have to be addressed. And if you, your body has the ability to fight these things, but it becomes more challenged if you're the further north you're living right. or the further away from the equator, because obviously the Southern Hemisphere is reversed. Yeah. So, um, so, so in conclusion, uh, it makes no sense to get these shots uh, yeah. because the illness is not caused by a microorganism. It's caused by out of sync with nature out of well, food. It, 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 I think it's a combination. I think that microorganisms there, a lot of people dispute that things, viruses don't exist. I think that's somewhat heretical for sure. And, and doesn't, isn't supported by solid science has been around for hundreds of years. So, but you but it's an impaired immune system that actually contributes to the infection. If you have a solid bulletproof immune system, you can throw all the viruses around. It's not going to be an issue. Your body can yeah. handle it. I, I would say Except that maybe bioengineered viruses. Right. Would be different. But I'm not saying I'm not saying, you know, there are viruses or they're not viruses. What I'm saying is that we're looking at the wrong cause for the illness. Yeah, right. Yeah. The, the virus isn't the cause of the illness. The virus is is the bystander. And it's just a piece of genetic material that you happen to be able to capture on a swab without even knowing if the viral material you're swabbing is from your cells, from uh, your bacterial cells that are lining your nose, or from the air that you breathe in. So that's why I'm saying it's 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 a it may be present, but I think it may not be the cause, and that's why uh, we want to look at other reasons for the body to get sick. Yeah. So typically, when you do get sick, because you've ignored or failed to uh, implement these these strategies to your lifestyle or for whatever reason you have stresses and you're not sleeping you know there's a lot of reasons you can get sick um, and you have a fever i'm sure you have some sage advice for this because even the hyper conservative american academy of pediatrics which which i don't suspect you're a member of <laughs> uh, but they D discourage the use of antipyretics or drugs that are used to lower fevers and all but a, a, a very unusual circumstances like right. child 
any, I think any infant under three months old, a fever is an issue. And then from three months to 36 months, it's another, if it's a, it's a lot lower threshold. Correct. It needs to be evaluated. So why don't, why don't you give us your take on fever? Well, again, uh, when an infant below the age of three months has fever, that needs to come to the attention of a medical physician. Mm -hmm. um, but most of the time, what, what we know is that a fever is actually an important mechanism of the body to clean out something that the body has perceived as a threat. There's inflammation, there are impurities, there are wastes, there are toxins, and the body says we have to get rid of them. And one of the fail-safe mechanisms to do that is through fever. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that the very chemicals that cause a fever are the same chemicals that are present all the time to maintain our body temperature at 98.6. So to think that at 98.6, we don't have those chemicals is incorrect. The same chemicals that give us 98.6 give us 102. But at 102, they're working a little bit greater in larger number to burn out and get rid of the wastes. The fallacy is that if you have fever, you must have an infection. And that's incorrect. There are three reasons to have fever. One, infection. Two, inflammation, which is probably the major reason to develop fever. And three, neoplasm or malignancy. How about four, mitochondrial uncoupling? Okay. Oh yeah, you love to talk about that, right? Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah, because you could take like massive doses of aspirin, like nine grams, you know, which would give you tinnitus through the roof, or dinitrophenol, which is illegal in the U.S. But it would, it, they both, you know, a couple. I'm not saying it's a healthy, a healthy thing to do, but it would, it generates a lot of heat because right. you just burn heat like crazy. When your temperature is like 103 or 104. You are burning, it's like your metabolic rate goes up like 10, 15%. And you're burning a lot of calories. Good, good. Well, it could be good, but maybe problem. Well, again, what's lost, you know, I'm glad you said that because what's lost, Joe, is when, when a, a, a child does have 103 or 104, mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's actually uh, a good thing because oh, it's, sure. it slows the body down. It stops you from putting more stress into the body. And if there's anything that my mentors taught me uh, back in the 1980s, um, which these were mentors who were practicing in New York since the 1940s, they would say that after their children resolved their fever illnesses, they would almost always have a developmental growth spurt because the purpose of the fever, which is almost always inflammation and not necessarily infection, is to clean out the body, is to prune the body, is to cleanse the body. And we've lost our understanding because we've taught parents to be afraid. And we've told parents that you don't have time for your kid to be sick. Let's give them the over-the-counter medicine. Let's give them the antibiotic. And let's make sure they have their shots so that they don't have to be sick and they don't have to miss school. Well, little, little do parents know is that giving the over-the-counter medicines for fever, giving the antibiotics for something that's not an infection, and giving the shots actually creates much bigger illnesses in your kids. Yeah, so the, um, 
Are there any indications that you think it's, well, actually before that, I had a question about Rye syndrome, which is ostensibly been associated with giving uh, aspirin to kids who have a fever. But I've been doing some reading on that and it it seems like it's really never been proven and it's just a theory. And I'm wondering if you've come to any hardcore conclusions because the the research I was looking at said it could just be equally related to Tylenol. Well, again, um, the, 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 I have not looked through the literature because it's not something that I'm exposed to or, or do, cause I don't recommend aspirin in my yeah, practice. Yeah. And I also don't recommend acetaminophen in my practice. It, to me, acetaminophen is probably close to, if not the largest poison you can put in your body because it depletes your body of the very chemical that you need in the moment when you're sick. And that's the glutathione that we talk about all the time. And uh, you need that glutathione if you're sick. And so giving acetaminophen is like taking from Peter and giving to Paul. And it just, it lowers your ability to to stay well. Um, But I don't know enough about the updated literature. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. How about your because at some point a fever can become too high. It's not typical, and and I'd be interested in hearing your experience as a as a pediatrician who's seen exponentially more uh, kids than the average parent, of course. Right. You, the the types of percentages where you think you actually need to suppress, because at some point there is, because you can go into a febrile seizure. Sure. Is that is that like one hundred and five, one hundred four point five, or what is your threshold for? Getting to, taking some more aggressive interventions to lower the temperature. So um, I'm not a fan of, of forehead or ear thermometers. So okay. these are not reliable to me, no matter what studies they say. Um, uh, to me, a good old oral or rectal thermometer, uh, if you can be careful and not, not break it. Uh, Are you talking about a mercury thermometer or a digital thermometer? Well, I, I, if a digital thermometer can be used rectally, then, then yeah, of course they can be. Yeah. Again, that's fine with me. Uh, but if people still have mercury thermometers, please be very careful with them. Yeah. I actually found my mercury thermometer that I grew up with uh, when uh, my mother passed away. And wow. I still have it. Anyway, um, the the rectal thermometer is the is the best from my perspective. But in 1993, when I was thinking about leaving the ER and going into private practice, I said to a colleague of mine whose practice I was looking at, I said, what do you do for all these kids who are three months to three years who have a fever and no re- you know, source for the fever? Do you do blood work and, and urine? He said, Larry, if I did blood work and urine on every one of those kids, I'd lose patients in my practice. Mm-hmm. I said, so what do you do? He said. Think about it. If you have a kid who's 104 and sitting up and looking at you and, you know, able to converse and able to keep the head up and hydrate and talk and interact, and a kid who was 100.4 mm-hmm. who couldn't lift the head up, who was lethargic and wasn't speaking, which kid would you worry about? And it was a great teaching for me because. It reminded me of clinical practice. Mm-hmm. Clinical practice says 
Can you evaluate the child for being alert, awake, arousable, interactive, able to walk, talk, drink, pee, poop? Uh, what's the skin color? What's the respiratory rate? And so I don't worry about the number as much as I want to be the clinician. I want to see what the kid looks like because one kid's 104 may be another kid's 102 and another kid's 105 or another kid's 101. And so I don't, I try not to focus on the number. Uh, the, the parent doesn't agree with me. And, you know, we have some conversation about it, but I try not to worry or focus on the number. Yeah, and you made the important distinction that there was an age group. This was kids over three months old. So uh, I think, is it three months to three years? Or yes. I know that, is it under three months? It's absolutely an issue. But is there an, another special extension from three months to three years old that you have a lower threshold for fever? Because it could be because they're, they're different humans. They're small humans and they have different well, uh, characteristics. When, when, I was, when I was training as a resident, if a child between the ages of three months to, I think it was two years, mm -hmm. uh, had a fever above 102.5 and no source, right? No obvious source. Mm -hmm. the, the, the concern was that the kid could have bacteremia. So yeah. uh, a bacterial. A bacteria. Right. So we would do a blood culture, a CBC and a urine. But, you know, outside of the hospital setting, that practice wasn't maintained. <laughs> okay. Pediatricians use their clinical skills. Um, but, you know, in the last 30 years, parents got trained to ask for medicine because they wanted their kid not to be sick, mm -hmm. because they believed it had to be an infection, because the public was made to believe and pediatricians were made to believe that if you didn't cover that kid, you'd have something more dangerous happen or something more serious could happen. And so mm -hmm. kids would get over-medicated and over-medicated. I, I rarely have to give medicines to the kids in my practice um, because good. I follow them, I'm clinical, and I try to guide parents as to what are the things to do to help quiet the fever without suppressing the fever. So warm baths. Now, it just occurred to me that I don't think we answered the question as to how many kids have you seen over that threshold, over the three years old that were 100, and what is the threshold, 104, 105, higher? Yeah, I don't look at the number. I'm more interested. You you're looking at, so you, you don't look at it. You just, you're looking at the clinical, clinical yeah. I mean, the parents are looking at the number, and then I include that with my clinical evaluation. Okay. But to me... Most often, the number uh, doesn't tell me who the kid is. I want to okay. see who the kid is. But I have remedies that I, I mean, isn't, isn't that a risk, though? I mean, because say a child did commit 105.5, and you're looking at him and you're convinced there's not a big issue because of your clinical assessment, but then there's something that happens. I mean, couldn't that be used against you if something you know, because it's, there's a, this, the, the standard of care, I guess, is the term that's used. And if you fail to do that, not a big deal, but if you fail to do that and an adverse outcome is manifested, then yeah. there's a risk there. 
Well, I don't, I don't practice in a litigious way. Uh, I don't, okay. I don't, I just, it's just not the way I approach a situation. And certainly, you know, I, I don't have a stronghold over the parent. If the parent wants to give the Motrin or the acetaminophen, that's perfectly their choice. I mm -hmm. provide them with other ways to help with the child so the child will feel comfortable uh, that are not suppressing, that don't uh, quiet the immune system's need to do what it's doing. Um, but, you know, if parents want to do that in combination with the medication, that's certainly their choice. I'm just providing them with other opportunities for helping the child through it. Because I found is that the more parents use the over-the-counter medicines, the, the longer worst. it takes for the fever to go away and the higher the fever comes back. Yeah, yeah that's, that's an interesting observation over a few decades. So are there any uh, consistent approaches that you found useful to facilitate recovery? Uh, like what are your key? I mean, are there any supplements that you would use like vitamin C or zinc? Uh, so, so the most important thing when a child has a fever uh, and I use this term a lot, is pull the plug, meaning can you keep stimulation into the child to a minimum. Mm -hmm. So turn the lights down, quiet the environment, lie down with the child. If there's anything that I've seen work over the years is a parent lying with a child or mm. a family member lying with the child. It's amazing what healing that can do. Wow, that's an interesting strategy. Warm bath, not a cold bath, a warm bath, because what a warm bath does is it makes the body sweat. And when the body sweats, the, uh, the, the temperature of the body can slowly go down because the evaporation of the sweat causes the body to cool. That doesn't mean you can't put a cool cloth on the forehead. Uh, naturopaths have taught me a wonderful uh, remedy where you take cold cotton socks that are wet and put them on the feet and you put warm, dry wool socks over it and put the kid to bed, get the kid under the covers and sweat it out. Let the kid sleep. Just make sure that the kid is arousable. Make sure the kid is hydrated. Don't feed the kid food. One of the major things that parents complain about when a child has a fever is my kid won't eat. And mm. my response to that is good. good. Very <laughs> happy. Very happy. Just make sure the child stays hydrated. Water, tea, broth, uh, more water, more tea, more broth. These are situations where I don't recommend juices. I don't recommend anything. I ask you about juices. No, I don't. Because I don't recommend anything cold and I don't recommend anything raw. And the child needs warmth. Okay. You don't want to stress the digestive system at all because it has to be quieted. Because um, in that situation, you want the rest of the immune system to be working to clean out whatever needs to be cleaned out. So essentially fasting. Fasting with hydration, right. With hydration, yeah. With hydration. And not a water fast, for sure. No, so no, no, no. Do no. you ever find that uh, a sauna therapy would be useful along those lines? Because yes. Yes. Again, along with maintaining hydration. Hydration. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, you could, that could be the killer. You did it without hydration. Well, again, that was one of the things that that was 
that I saw when I was an ER physician for all those years, we'd see so many kids who were sick and they came in because they were dehydrated. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and then it's not just water. It's also the electrolytes, because if you're just drinking plain water, you're going to get dehydrated. Right. That's why the broth, the bone broths, yeah. the vegetable broths. Yeah. You got to have some, some the teas. osmolarity in there to right. keep the food in the cells. And I do, I do recommend that parents take um, either Celtic or Redmond sea salt and put it into the water to yeah. maintain those electrolytes. I'm not a fan of the over-the-counter electrolyte drinks. Those, those are not electrolyte drinks to me. You mean like Gatorade, right? Uh, yeah, that's one of them. <laughs> There's others. Yeah. So uh, do you have any views on saline rinses? Uh, uh, hypertonic saline rinses, like two or 3%, maybe even being more effective. There's been some research showing that, especially like a neti pot uh, or just nasal irrigation, the sinuses. I'm a huge fan. And the maybe, I don't know, maybe over 20 years ago, I remember uh, meeting with a family and I asked the five-year-old girl to do a neti pot and she did it. And so anytime since then, when I recommend the neti pot, I I invoke that story that if a five-year-old can do it, any kid can do it. It's an amazing, amazing way to clean out the sinuses, open up the sinuses. And mm-hmm. there's nothing like proper breathing to help with you. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and it, it tends to be viricidal. I mean, especially a hypertonic solution yeah. has clearly been shown in, in many studies to, to, to combat viruses. It just kills them dead because they can't, they can't, it's, it's a such a destructive stress when you have that high of an osmolality. Right. And that's where they reside. The first place is the nose and the sinuses. Right. Not yep. the lungs. Yep. So I'm glad you found that useful. Oh, you, yeah. So you still oh, yeah. recommend it. I still do. And I use it myself if I need to. <laughs> All right. Well, any, any other th- items you'd like to expound on in, in this crazy days that we're going through in the lull of the post-COVID progressing into who knows what? Well, you know, I, I think that, um, that we, are, we are at a time of tremendous censorship. And what I would say to uh, parents who are looking for information if you are being censored, I would hope that that would raise your alarm that something is being suppressed for a reason, which means that you would want to know what is being suppressed and why. Because in a true republic and in a true uh, fr- uh, society of freedom, why wouldn't you have the opportunity to look at opposing views and come to a conclusion on your own? And so I would, I would ask you to continue to question, continue to look for answers. Uh, there are many, many resources that are available to you to find information that you could then go down a rabbit hole. And, and I will tell you that, that I have heard experts say that parents are not smart enough to understand the science of vaccines or the science of nutrition or the science of pediatric development or education. And I will tell you that just hearing that should make for an alarm because you are smart enough, 
you've proven that you're smart enough and it's your kid. It's your kid. So understand that we are at a time where I strongly recommend that you take back your power to actually raise your kid, to educate your kid, to feed your kid properly, to understand what goes into your child and what shouldn't go into your child. And to be able to make those decisions is a family and not allow the state or some outside resource to take over your child's body and your child's mind. Indeed. So if people are in the New York metropolitan area and were interested in finding you, how would they do that? And do you have a any social media presence or yep. you've been, have you been censored and banned? Uh, I have been um, censored uh, a little bit, banned once, and I reopened a, uh, an account. And now I could just see that they prevent some of my information from. Okay. So from you're throttled or, or yeah. shadow, shadow banned is with it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But um, so my website is dr. Pilevsky, P-A-L-E-V-S-K-Y.com. I work at the Northport Wellness Center in Northport, Long Island, and uh, I have an Instagram account at dr.polevsky, a Telegram account at dr.polevsky, and I have a number of other accounts in MeWe and Rumble and all of that. But and nothing on Facebook or I YouTube? have a Facebook account, but I personally never <laughs> go on Facebook. Again, <laughs> It's probably a solid strategy. Yeah. And even if you did, they would they'd shadow ban you in a heartbeat. Then that's okay. That's okay. I, I think it's a badge of honor if they shadow ban. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, absolutely. Well, or ban you. You know, like they've done to many of us. <laughs> well, again, I, I think what it says to the public is uh, we're controlling what information you should get, and uh, we're making you believe that it's for your good. Yeah. And if you want to be a sheep, or if you want to be a part of the cattle, that's fine. But uh, if you don't, I would certainly be concerned that that's what they're doing. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy got into the anti-vax uh, movement about the same time you did for the same reasons with the vaccine, the mercury in the vaccines, which mm -hmm. which was back then. They've removed it from many of the vaccines now. But the reason I mentioned that is that both Bobby's YouTube account and my account. <laughs> had no strikes against us in COVID, zero, none. We followed the rules. We didn't post anything anti-COVID, nothing. Then we wake up one day in August of 2021 and find that both of our accounts are banned. Why? Because they, they had made a new rule in the morning and said, if you ever posted anything that was anti-vax, you're banned which totally violates their terms of service, you know, right. because they have to warn you, give you a chance to rectify it. But right. we never got, never got one strike and they still banned us. We yeah. wound up suing them. And unfortunately, by the luck of the draw, we got the wrong judge because he had to sue them in California, right? So that's a problem. And we got a, a liberal, liberal lefty judge and she dismissed the case without even <laughs> looking at the fundamental things. Right. But anyway. Yeah. It's, I, a, it's a badge of honor for sure. Yeah. I mean, if anybody is willing to do some critical thinking and look around you and assess, why is this happening all of a sudden? What happened to the days where we had public discourse, public debate, uh, disagreement, and still were able to, to go on with life in a, in a 
in a real and functional way. I, I, I don't I, even even if you don't agree with our positions, at least be uh, concerned that our positions are being squelched. That's a power play. And uh, yeah. I, I would say it's not safe for you either, even if you're on the side of the of the narrative that's being pushed. Yeah. Because in a, on a dime, you could be censored in no time. They'll come for you too, eventually. <laughs> exactly. exactly. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing and have done and continue to do. Uh, and uh, you keep up the good work and keep up the good fight. You too. Thank you. I appreciate you. All right. We'll talk again. All right. Thanks, Larry. Bye. Bye now.